So we are starting a new series today on the Apostles' Creed. If you look in your bulletin, there's an insert there in blue that has the words to the Apostles' Creed on it. Some of you may be familiar with it. We say it most Sundays when we practice communion. Maybe as a child you learned and memorized it or some version of it. So we're going to be looking at this creed over the next few weeks, probably most of the summer, and thinking about what it is, why we say it, what it means, and how it affects our life. And so as I begin this morning, I want to tell two stories. The first, I want you to use your imagination and go back to maybe a hundred years after the time of Jesus. And there's a small church that's gathered together. And there's a group of people who've been interested in following the way of Jesus. So for probably two or three years, they've been working with others. They've been learning. They've been being taught about what it means to follow Jesus. The big word for that is catechesis. They were catechumens. And so maybe some of you grew up in a Lutheran church somewhere and you went to catechism. And catechism simply means it's a teaching. And so after two or three years of teaching, they went through and they were getting prepared now to be baptized and to be received into the fellowship. And they did their baptisms typically once a year on Easter Sunday. And so on the eve before Easter, they gathered together. And they prayed they read the scripture, they continued to receive some teaching. And then on dawn, on Easter day, they separated the men from the women. And the reason for that will become clear soon because after separating the from men from the women, then they stripped and be went till they were naked. They took off all their clothes. The women took off all their jewelry even and let down their hair. And then they were anointed with oil. And they were led and they were baptized. And then as they and when they were baptized, this is what the baptism looked like. The priest or whoever was presiding over it would say to them, do you believe in God the Father Almighty? And the person would say, I believe. And they would be plunged beneath the waters. And then the presider would say, do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who was crucified in the days of Pontius Pilate and died? And rose the third day, living from the dead, and ascended into the heavens, and sat down at the right hand of the Father, and will come to judge the living and the dead. And the person said, I believe, and they were plunged beneath the waters and taken back up. And then a third time, do you believe in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Church, in the resurrection of the flesh? And they would say, I believe, and again, the third time, plunged beneath the waters and brought out. And then a final time, anointed with oil, and then dressed in new clothes, welcomed into the church and gathered together and eating communion or Eucharist for the first time with the people in the church. And so you may have heard in those words that were asked of this baptismal candidate echoes of what we know as the Apostles' Creed. And these were the words that were asked and recorded by Hippolytus and his thing. And so these were there is this question and answer of what went on. Second story is what we read a portion of from the book of 2 Chronicles. This long story, and so kind of setting up the story, young Josiah has become king. And the nation of Israel has been going through war, they've been going suffering periods of idolatry, and Josiah is a good king, and he begins to, because of God's leading in him, lead the nation back in right paths. They begin to tear down some of the altars, they begin to rebuild the temple. And in the midst of rebuilding the temple, they discover the book of the law. 
they discover what we call the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, these stories of God's creation and also the laws given to the people of Israel. Now notice what's happened here. The people of Israel have been living and they don't even have what we would call a Bible. They have no scripture. They have nothing. They've been kind of existing on their own. And there's this great excitement when finally they discover the book of the law. And so they begin to read it and ultimately Josiah says to them that they're supposed to, to read it. And so later on in down in chapter, verse 30, describing Josiah, says, he went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, and the Levites, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. Then it says, the king stood by his pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes and decrees with all his heart and all his soul and to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. So here are these two stories. And I want us to keep those two stories in mind because what Josiah does is he recovers, he discovers this book. And then he says, you need to hear this book. You need to hear what God has said. But it's not just enough to know what's said. We need to obey it and we need to do it. And so these two stories kind of serve as a helpful frame as thinking about this Apostles' Creed. And so as we begin the series today, I want to kind of begin with three questions. Well, where did the creed come from? What's the function of the creed? And then maybe just a little bit about what's our goal? What's our hope for this series as we spend the summer together? So where did the creed come from? We've got this thing, we call it the Apostles' Creed. Well, truth is, we don't really know where it came from. Now, there are some kind of fanciful stories. One fanciful story suggests that the apostles, so another word for apostles means the sent ones, or we would call them the 12 disciples, they were sitting around one day, and Peter says, well, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And somebody says, well, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. And they kind of went around, and all 12 of them added something to it. Probably not. We don't know where it came from, but we know that it kind of sprung up in all these different places. We heard about it in this baptismal liturgy. Irenaeus, who was a priest in Gaul, or what we would call modern-day France in the second century, okay, so again, in the 100, 150, 170 AD, talked about these same words. So all across where people were following Jesus, they were developing this basic summary of what it means to believe. And so as we think about, well, why do we have creeds? And so the Apostles' Creed is not the only one. There's one called the Nicene Creed. And then many other denominations have creeds or confessions. There's the Westminster, there's the Heidelberg, there's the Augsburg. And so depending on the church, and there's these long lists of... The Apostles' Creed is probably one of the shorter ones. And the Nicene Creed is one perhaps you're familiar with. But one of the ways that the creed functions is to teach. It's an educational thing. It's a way to tell a story. It's a way to remind us of what's going on. It's not merely a list of propositions, but you notice it tells a story. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. It begins with God creating and then God sending his son Jesus and Jesus redeeming all things and then ending with this picture of 
I believe in the Holy Spirit and the resurrection and the life everlasting. And so it's this story that goes on. It tells us the created world is God's domain. And he becomes incarnate. It's about what we believe. But so why, why make creeds? Why do you think the church made these creeds? I mean, again, whether they were come out of roots or eventually sometimes in confessions, one is it was a way to spot and avoid misleading versions. So you can imagine in the early church, as the church spreads, there's no internet, there's no Google, there's no different ways. So as you go into a new community or as you're sitting in your church and someone's telling you a story, you say, well, is that the right story? Is that the true story? It's the same sort of things we struggle with today, isn't it? An event happens, something goes on, and there's various perspectives, various ideas of what really happened or what's true. And so the church was trying to sort out, well, what's the truth of the matter? What's the right thing? And so the creeds were a way for somebody to kind of have this basic framework when someone was telling you a story to be able to look and say, so if someone come and came to you and said, well, the earth just is the result of a war between a dragon and a god and it got split open and it's like, and you say, no. It says, God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. The earth exists because God made it. Or if somebody said, well, Jesus, he's just, he's just a good guy. And it says, no, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And so there was this basic framework that worked out. And what it did was it made explicit what we believe and what we don't. Now you read the Apostles' Creed and you realize there's a whole lot of stuff it doesn't answer. And that wasn't the function of the creeds. Now, some of you maybe grew up in traditions that had much longer things. I mentioned some of these, so like the Westminster Catechism or the Augsburg Confession or the Heidelberg Confession. These are much longer. They're books and they go through detail step by step by step of all kinds of beliefs. The creeds, like the Apostles of Nicene, are much shorter than that. And their purpose is not to get rid of all the questions, but it's to help us make sense of these things. And so it's not unlike what we find in the Bible at times. So in the book of 1 Corinthians, when Paul is talking, I'm sorry, and he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. But you notice what he says. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. It's not all the details. It's not everything about Jesus. It doesn't even explain even all the details of what exactly happened on the cross and different theories of atonement, all this stuff. But it gives the basics, and that's what a creed does. It helps us understand the basics. And now, we might say, well, so do we just use the Bible? Or do we just use a creed instead of the Bible? The creeds are not a substitute for the Bible. The creeds are not 
a replacement for the Bible, but we understand the creeds by digging into the Bible. So in some sense, what happens, we read a creed, and what it's encouraging us to do is then go to the Bible and read more about that. So we read the phrase, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit. We say, oh, what's that all about? And we go to our Bibles to see what that's all about. So Nicholas Lash said it this way. He says, we only discover the meaning of the creed in the, in the, in the measure that the Bible stays an open book. I'm going to read that again. We only discover the meaning of the creed in the measure that the Bible stays an open book. In other words, the creed does not become a substitute for the Bible. The creed doesn't become something we just... But the creed becomes a way that opens the Bible. It provides this framework. And maybe you say, well, I don't need all this doctrine stuff because now we're getting into theology and doctrine. And sometimes it's a temptation to say, wow, pastor, I don't need all that doctrine stuff. Just give me Jesus. Here's what Rowan Williams, Archbishop in England says. He says, the job of doctrine is to hold us still before Jesus. When that slips out of view, we begin instead to use the language to defend ourselves, to denigrate others, to control others and correct. And then it becomes a problem. So he says doctrine can become a problem because sometimes we start to think we're really smart. We start to think, oh, here's my doctrine and I have all my things neatly categorized and laid in lines. But what Rowan Williams says is the point of doctrine is to hold us still before Jesus. And in fact, that's the history and part of our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church. And so the Evangelical Covenant Church comes out of the Swedish Lutheran Church from the late 1800s. And what had happened in the Swedish Lutheran Church in the 1800s was, as many European countries, there was essentially a state church. And so what that meant was, when you paid your taxes, the taxes also went to the church. A portion of your taxes supported the local congregation. And it also meant that, basically, by being a citizen, you were also a member of the church. When you were born at church, you were put on a roll. And one of the key things of being a member of the church was they would list out the doctrines, the important beliefs. And if you could sign off on that and say, I believe all that stuff, then you were okay. The problem became, was it's one thing to simply believe and be able to ascribe to a certain set of doctrines. But it's another thing to actually have a living relationship with Jesus and to live those things out. And so the covenant was born out of this revival movement that looked at people who were just simply saying, I've got all the answers. I know all the right things. I can quote my Bible and I can defend my faith, but had no living relationship with Jesus. Had no sense of heart. And that's why one of the early questions of the covenant was, how goes your walk? Because one of the questions is, is it alive? And so what Rowan Williams says here, he says the point of doctrine or the job of doctrine is to hold us still before Jesus. And so my hope is that by the end of this summer, as we've gone through the Apostles' Creed and we start digging into doctrine and theology, that the goal, the ultimate goal is you're closer to Jesus. You're more in love with him that you have a stronger sense of who I am. So a creed starts, I believe. 
that we all believe something. Some people say, well, I don't, you know. We all have some sort of system. And beliefs are more than just what we say because really our beliefs are reflected not so much in what we say, but how we act. A belief is the way we see the universe. Now, most of us may not express it explicitly, but you all believe in gravity. I think. If you don't believe in gravity, I've got a test for you. <laughs> Climb up there and step off and see what happens, right? But it's not just physics and things like that, but there are lots of things we believe in. Sometimes there's a conflict about those things. We say, I believe in this, but we act in a very different way. So if we maybe say, well, I believe all people are created in the image of God, but then we treat people differently based on their socioeconomic status, the color of their skin, their accent, their language, whatever it is, we don't truly believe those things. We have a different belief that's functioning. And so sometimes what we need to do is evaluate because sometimes we have as what we sometimes refer to as our stated beliefs and our true beliefs. And the creed is getting at that. It's saying those two things need to match up. And so when we say something, and that's what we're going to examine, when we say, I believe that God is the creator of heaven and earth, that should make a difference in the way that we live. If we say, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting, that should make a difference in the way we believe. It's not something, simply something where when we die, we stand before Jesus and he gives us a multiple choice. Examine, we have to make sure we get all the, we fill in the circles properly with our number two pencil. And we get all the answers correct. Part of it, those beliefs are about how we behave and what we do right now. We act according to what we believe. So that just that first line, I believe, is setting us up for this whole series of thinking about what is it you really believe? What is it you truly believe about who God is and about who Jesus is? Because sometimes we can answer the questions, but it's not how we believe. Because we can say, I believe I'm saved by grace. We can talk about it. We, we're, good, we're good evangelicals. I believe saved by grace. But then, how many of us feel so incredibly guilty? Well, it's been like three days since I read my Bible and I feel so far from God. You are not far from God. God has not moved. Nothing has changed about that. Or we sit and we do something that's like, well, I'm not sure if God can forgive me. It's all right there. God will forgive. And so there's these things that we have and we don't always match up. We can come to church. We can answer the questions. That we can answer when the pastor asks or we can sit in our Bible study group. We can be at home studying, and we can say the words, but the question is, do they really sink down inside of us? So the creed is designed in part to do that, to sink down the doctrine inside of us. And part of the sermon series, the goal is then to take and say, what does that doctrine, what does that truth mean in terms of making a difference? But something else that happens is you notice when we say the creed, typically on a Sunday morning communion, we say it all together. Now, you can say it on your own, but typically we say it all together. And interestingly, the other creeds, like the Nicene Creed, use the word we. We believe. Because when we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, we're not just saying words we make up. 
I think of weddings, and I've done a number of weddings over time, and we have a, I have a book of list of like vows and, and creeds and stuff. And a couple stands up and sometimes they'll choose to write their own vows, but much of the words that they say are the same words that have been repeated by couple after couple through generations. And it unites them to this because it's recognizing that the words we say connect us to something bigger. And so when we say, I believe, and we recite the Apostles' Creed, it's not just us standing alone. It's us reciting it with all the people sitting here in these pews. It's us reciting it with all the other churches here in Muskegon and throughout the rest of the county and through the state of Michigan and across the United States and around the world that on this day when they gather for worship, many of them will stand in, in, in English or in their own language will say these very words. And when we say those words, we connect to them. We connect to our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, and back to our ancestors who all said these same words maybe in slightly different forms, but we're connected to them. So the statement of I believe isn't just, well, this is what I believe and this is my truth. It's, it's saying that we're part of something bigger. And so as I said, part of the goal is to not only understand the creed, but what it teaches, but how to live it. Because knowing the right things is important, but it's not enough. We must do them. And so that was what James was talking about. It's like, yeah, it's one thing to have faith, to believe, but not have deeds. I love that line. He says, you believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that. And shudder. So it's not simply enough to say, yeah, I believe in God. But how does that make a difference in our lives. And that's kind of without digging in all that James says, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And he goes on to talk about Abraham. So again, as we read through these creeds and as we say these words, we recognize that it's not simply enough to say, I believe this thing. My hope is that when we leave on a Sunday morning from any sermon, that you simply just don't know some more information. It's nice to know more things. It's nice to learn some new things, maybe learn some new facts about the Bible, understand a Bible story a little bit differently. But ultimately, the goal of all these things, the goal of all our teaching, is that we become shaped, we become conformed, we become transformed, we become look more like Jesus because God has a plan for us and wants to be made us, make us and change us. So these two things, doctrine and practice, go together. So like Beth Felker Jones, she says it this way. She says, the job is to not get all the answers right. Get an amen for that? Yeah, like we don't have to get all the answers right. She says, the point of our study is to grow in our knowledge of and faithfulness to God. Again, it's not a matter of God giving you a, a quiz at the end of the time. And even... If you have your Bible study that you have Bible study group you meet with, if you read your Bible on your own, the goal is not simply to grow in knowledge, but to grow in knowledge and faithfulness to God. The theology is not simply about information or building a system. It's discipleship. It's learning to put all these things together. So I know we didn't spend a lot of time. We're going to go in the next few weeks, spend more time in some of our scriptures and really look at some of these because you think, you haven't even started yet, Pastor. I got the first two words, I believe. 
That's how far we made it. We'll move a little faster than that yes to the summer, but not a lot. We're just going to take it line by line and think about what each of these things means. And the goal, again, is to not simply have a good doctrinal statement. The goal is to not simply say the right things. So even as Paul says, he, you know, he says, I received, a, you know, what I gave unto you as of first importance, that Christ died according to Scripture. We can say that, but more importantly, how does that make a difference? What difference does that make in our life? How does that help us love God more? How does this help us love our neighbor more? How does it help us look more like Jesus? And so that's our goal for this summer. Is just kind of think through those things and think about what is it we believe using those words of the Apostles' Creed and then going through it and then thinking about how will that change who we are? How will that change who we are as a people? How will it change us as individuals, as a church? How will we be transformed as we say and as those words not only become words that are in our head, but in our heart, in our, in our hands, the words that become action. So that when we say, I believe, that it's just as much as we believe in gravity. That when we say, I believe in God, when we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, when we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, that it becomes so much a part of who we are and the way we live, that it affects the way we truly live. So I want us to end this morning by saying those words together. So let's stand together. We're going to recite the words of the Apostles' Creed. And while we're doing that, I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward too, please. <laughs>